Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ship It and Sip It. I'm excited to have Daniel Walsh, the founder and CEO of VeroSkills, in the studio today. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, John. Really appreciate this. Uh, this is an exciting chat because I feel like VeroSkills is a great platform for both learners and tutors in, in tech and coding uh, to improve themselves, improve their skills, and improve their career. So let's dive into it. Uh, when did you start working on the idea? Yeah, so I've, I've been in the uh, software education world for a long time now. Um, I used to run a software uh, services company where I built software for, for other companies. Um, and I would run little kind of mini coding, coding boot camps inside that company. And um, then I ran um, a company that I started uh, for a number of years um, that was a coding boot camp where I trained about a thousand software engineers and and place them at jobs all over the U.S. and and actually a decent amount international as well. Um, and so, so yeah. So really, you know, it, when I was working at that company and then going through 2020, there was this, you know, massive shift that happened where so many people had lost their job due to the pandemic. Like they were. We're working a retail job, working a factory job, you know, one of these jobs that literally just went away overnight um, due to not being able to to do anything with the pandemic. And we all of a sudden, you know, one day we thought the company was going to go out of business and we were like, what are we going to do? You know, and then like the next day we were literally having thousands of applications pouring in because what we realized was all of the people that couldn't um, work anymore needed to have a skill to make money with they needed to have a real skill and i think there was a light bulb moment for a lot of people that was like hey i'm my job is essentially only as good as the next you know economic crisis or the next meltdown or the next time you know the stock of my company doesn't perform well and you know so for me that was such a, a light bulb reaction because we had all these thousands of people apply but um, for the, um, people that applied, there was probably only about 600 people in total that were able to come through and actually get the training. And so for all the thousands and thousands of people that applied, a small number could have actually come through and get trained. So it, it, that kind of set me on a journey of thinking like, okay, we have the technology, we have the resources to figure out a really big problem that there's a huge population of people in the world that for whatever reason can't easily access this type of learning, this type of training to get into this high earning career. And so they're, they're blocked, they're gated out. And, um, I just don't think the world is shifting and staying in that direction. And we need a platform that really is adapting to the way the world is changing. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that, that kind of got me on the journey <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, started trying to figure out, okay, how would that look? What would a platform look like that, you know, overcame all the obstacles for students that they needed to have 
biggest one of which was that they didn't have to pay anything for the training to come through. That was uh, a thing that was really near and dear to me to train figure out, which is a very hard problem to figure out, right? Like, hey, I'm going to invent a business and nobody pays for it. You know, <laughs> it's something that investors just really want to get by. So um, figuring out that business model, I think, was the biggest kind of, you know, uh, the biggest thing that took time. Okay. And I guess you mentioned a lot of earlier experience with uh, educating people in terms of coding and tech stuff but um were there any certain earlier experiences you had that that made you feel like you were capable as a founder to do, to take on this task yeah so you know i had done a few different startups before i'd done this is my third startup to be a co-founder or founder of and so I, I, I knew what I was signing up for because the last startup I ran was a grueling like four years of like building. And then we got it to this like really good place where it was stable, but it was the, it was a heavy experience. So, um, so I knew kind of what I was signing up for with like the, the challenge that, uh, presented. Um, and I feel like I, you know, really, you know, with training those thousand software engineers over the the last 40 years, really understood the obstacles that those students were going to face to be being able to learn well. Um, so, um, you know, <laughs> understanding, okay, how do we build a platform that's actually making this learning be as available as um accessible like getting some of the major obstacles out of the way for the learner so that they can just focus on learning really well which i feel like a lot of traditional models are not present presenting that in a good way and so it, to kind of explain that it may be a little more clear like uh, a big one is like students you know oftentimes if you're doing a class online or you're doing a class in person you have set class times you have to show up to you have to go to this online class where you're you're in that a certain hour of the day and our lives are just incredibly busy and incredibly random at times so you know it might be that we're on our way to the class and you know somebody you know, hits us in the back with their car, right? And, you know, we have to get our car repaired and we can't make class. Well, now that time is totally inconvenient. And so, like, one of the obstacles we overcome is we've built this on-demand, like, Uber-like model for software engineering tutoring where you can literally do a tutoring call 24 hours a day and it works in exactly the time frame that is convenient for your life. Um, and so those were, those were kind of the things I feel like I, I answered that question in a really different kind of way, but <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Uh, I guess various skills as it is, as a product is very new. Uh, it's live on the site. Go check it out at varusskills.com. But I, I'm, I'm curious in this case, uh, does the current platform match what you thought of two, two and a half, three years ago? Have there been, 
major changes along the way? Yeah, I would say um, the initial idea that I thought of two, three years ago was actually pretty similar technically. Like the initial idea I had in my head was pretty similar to what it's actually gotten to and it is now like everything operates really well thanks to our friends at Parallel. Uh, but uh, yeah, thumbs up there. But um, the so the initial idea is is pretty similar. We've also, we've obviously added like some really you know some really cool like features that have just enhanced that initial idea. But um, the initial technical idea is pretty similar. The business model was the thing that we played around with to really, like, we had to reimagine that a little bit. Because initially we were like, okay, how can we do this that makes it, you know, the most affordable for students to come through, get this learning, get this education, and get hired? And so initially we were like, well, maybe we charge a student like $20 a month. Maybe we give it to them free and then... They like earned minutes a certain way. And then we realized like, why are we thinking about the students even paying a very small amount? Why don't we say, hey, let's partner with corporations. Let's partner with nonprofits that sponsor those students. And that way the student is the one that can get this training, be impacted in this huge way. Um, and we're, we're serving that nonprofits community and we're also helping somebody get into this amazing career at the same time. So the business model is the thing that looks probably the most different from the initial idea. Uh, the, the soul of the business model is the same, but that's the thing that's evolved the most to really honestly make the company work and function. <laughs> okay. Uh, that raises a, a, a new question from my side. I guess- yeah. Now, now would be a good time to clarify who who can go on various skills and learn. Do you need to be? Is there some qualification? As you mentioned, the the partnerships that you have that are funding this. Yeah, yeah, would yeah, that that's a great question um, to answer. It would help if I actually explain it, right? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so. You know, in various skills, our whole model is we're we're a mission driven company. We want to change the the game, change the narrative when it comes to the massive populations that live in poverty worldwide and don't have access to the types of higher education and the types of higher opportunities that they can get through that education to be able to get into a really good career. So um, we we go about that um, by working through corporations. So predominantly NGOs, nonprofits, we say, hey, um, we know you serve like, you know, the Red Cross, for instance, it could be a great example, right? We know you, you're serving, you know, hundreds of millions of people worldwide. And there's a section of what you do to help individuals transition into a, uh, a career that can be really beneficial. Um, so what what we say is, hey, sponsor a group of students from your community that can benefit from this type of career. And we're going to train them on the platform using our live tutoring and our um, all the technology that makes it really easy for a student to learn. 
And then we're going to put them through a six month path, get them hired, get them into the field and connect them with corporations that are wanting to hire from a more diverse talent pool and wanting to make an impact through their hiring. So that's kind of the big thing. Like a lot of, like a lot of people don't realize corporations actually, um, you know, will give philanthropically to a lot of these communities that are struggling with poverty and, and just need help. And a lot of these nonprofits and NGOs that work in those communities. And so, um, we go to those same corporations and we say, Hey, great job for giving philanthropically. What if you could actually change someone's life? What if you could actually put them on a path where they're now out of poverty? They're now making a, a livable wage and they're on a career path where they can make, you know, incredible money, support with themselves, support their family. And, um, you're still able to find those really critical technical folks that you need inside your corporation. So that's, that's kind of how it works. Um, yeah. All right. That makes sense. Uh, let's get into a little bit of the, the feedback you may have gotten from the investors. Uh, last year in September on Twitter, you wrote that, quote, I've pitched to 100 plus VCs in the last two years. If your story lacks focus, VCs will lack interest. So I guess what is the focus of Veriskills that you're pitching and have you succeeded in in raising uh, investments for it? Yeah, yeah, great question. So we've raised uh, 1355000 to date in seed funding. Um, and we're actually currently in the process of raising a $3 million seed round, um, which we... Um, are actually getting pretty close to, to doing so. Um, but it's not finalized yet, but it's getting close. Um, so I would say, you know, so now that number of 100, probably more like 175. But um, <laughs> so, you know, what I've realized in pitching, I used to think that when I'm getting on a call with an investor, or when, am I, when I'm having a meeting with an investor, that my job was to try and give them every bit of information they could possibly even ask for like and and just try to fill in every possible information gap for them before they even ask and so you know it would take me a long time to go through my pitch deck because i would be like spending a few minutes five minutes on each pitch deck what i realized is you have to really keep uh you you have to open up the imagination of the investor to want more and and leave them wanting more um, by your pitch. Um, so you need to you need to you know really just be able to tell the story in a focused enough way where it makes sense, right? Okay, we're attacking this huge problem. We're declaring war on poverty. Our mission is to end poverty, right? Okay, great. Now we've established that, and everybody's like, "Wow, that's a big problem." Right? How is this joker going to solve that? <laughs> um, so, and then, then you have to like explain how you're going to do that, but don't read them a manual. You know, like I, you're going to explain how you're doing that in maybe twenty seconds, maybe less. And, you, and then you're you're going on and you're moving through your deck and you know going through the details, but it's it's less about trying to give them all the information they could ever ask for because 
you and me are just like investors. If I sit here right now with you and I go for an hour explaining the technical aspects of everything with the platform, you'll walk away and you'll be like, Daniel, that guy is, is you know, just way overboard, right? And like way in the weeds. And I maybe remember two minutes right what he went over because now my brain is fried thanks a lot daniel um and that's how investors are too so you know and it's good for them to ask the majority of the questions so um like being really focused on what you're gonna say uh, to kind of summarize being really focused on what you're going to say and really really clearly establishing that problem like right off the bat like it's got to be like you know like you know our the main slide of our pitch deck it starts out with we are declaring war on poverty like boom it's you right off the bat so like you have to be really obvious of what is this huge problem that you're tackling and then try to very quickly explain your solution and you can leave more on a slide you know a pitch deck but very quickly explain your solution and, and then, you know, leave their questions ready to be answered, you know? So don't try to give them the manual on your company. Cause that's not exciting. You know, me and you would be in a call and you know, it, if we spent an hour and I went through all the technical aspects, I'd be like, I don't know what that was. Maybe that guy had a good thing, but it wasn't exciting. So, you know, I'm probably going to pass. Yeah. Investors want to be excited. Right on. Great advice. Thank you for that. Let's see. We've talked about the learners. We've talked about the funding. I guess there's a third group that I don't quite fully understand yet, and that is the tutors themselves. Uh, who can be a tutor on various skills? Uh, what do they gain from that experience? Yeah. So really great question. So, you know, we every aspect of what we do is an impact Based platform. So, you know, the companies that are engaging with us, they are engaged to, to make a greater impact, to move the needle in a way. The students that are engaged with us, they are the ones that are, you know, being taken out of poverty and, and trained and put into this really great opportunity. The tutors are some of the most skilled software engineers in the world. So these are your folks that are working for companies like Google and Apple, Amazon. They're making great money already, right? Phenomenal money. But they join our platform not to really make a lot more money, but to make a difference. So oftentimes, as a software engineer, you're already training somebody in your side time. You're already helping a friend or somebody's asked you to mentor them, you know, in software engineering. And a lot of times software engineers don't have like a good outlet to do that because it just doesn't always, it's not always convenient to like go drive somewhere and, and try to handle that. And so it's just hard to kind of get that scheduled. And so what we, you know, what we did is we reached out to about 150,000 different software engineers on LinkedIn, and we sent literally 150,000 like direct messages, of which I think I sent 80,000 personally, which was a horrible task to do. <laughs> but uh, don't recommend it for anyone. But um, but 
we sent out these messages and we said, hey, you know, we, we see based upon your experience, your skills that, you know, you're the type of software engineer we would want tutoring our students on our platform. This is what we're doing. We're we're changing lives. We're we're lifting people out of poverty and training them in these skills. And we would like to invite you to become a tutor on our platform to earn um, a little bit of side money. Right? It's not going to be your Google money, but it's going to be a little bit of side money. And you're actually doing something that's really impactful, really powerful um, at the same time. And so, number one reason our tutors doing is to make an impact. Um, and a difference. And the, the, you know, the fact that they make a little bit of money while they're doing it is kind of just gravy to the impact um, core reason and why they're there. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. And that LinkedIn campaign sounds painful, but uh, I guess it was worth it in the end, right? Yeah. You you have to, I, I think it's uh, the, uh, Paul Graham from Y Combinator. I think he was the one that said this, that, you know, in the early days of a startup, you have to do things that don't scale to be able to get to scale. And so I'm a big believer in that. Like you just, you have to do the absolute, you know, worst miserable work, like to make it work until it does work. Right. So, um, so yeah, it was horrible, but we, it worked. <laughs> awesome. Well, you are the second founder I've had on the show from Birmingham, Alabama. And so wow. I'm curious, uh, how did you find your way to partnership with Parallax? Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Birmingham must be getting on the map somehow. Uh, <laughs> finally, our big moment. This is happening. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, a friend of mine, um, a, a local founder, um, here in Birmingham, um, a gentleman named uh, Shagan uh, had actually worked with you all at um, Parallax before, um, and, and um, had has been quite successful. <laughs> he worked with you all through the whole journey, and then sold his company for one point two billion dollars. So, um, I, you know, was was building. We were building our. Uh, you know, our platform and it just felt like everything that could go wrong with the platform did go wrong. Like, like we didn't have any real, um, organization to how we were doing software releases. And, you know, there wasn't a really good QA plan. So I would find myself, you know, <laughs> going in and like QA in every release and finding a you know, hundred things that were wrong. And it just wasn't working out well quite honestly. And, and, um, and it was taking up the majority of my time that I could have been on bringing on clients, bringing on investors, and it's just not a great thing to be in. So when Shagan gave his recommendation, being that it came from him, you know, a founder that sold his company for 1.2 billion, that was like, okay, that's a really good indicator that the, this is a team I should talk to. Um, and then when talking to you guys, um, and, and just interacting with you all, like it became obvious, like, you know, instantly why, you know, Paralect is so different from just another company that's coming in and, and taking on the software. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's how I discovered you all. Um, but, um, 
hopefully many more Birmingham founders uh, go your way. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And and Shagan has started since the exit he has. He's started the Harmony Venture Labs, and yep. we, we've partnered with several of those founders that they've launched so far, and we're very happy to to continue that. Obviously, it's a great group to work with due to their success, and it's the yeah. continuing trust in what we do from our side. So it's it's a great partnership. Uh, so I'm curious then, were there any other aspects uh, that you were looking for in terms of development partner? You mentioned that things weren't going well. Uh, so can you describe sort of the setup you had before? Were you working with a small in-house engineering team? Were you trying to do it all just yourself? What was going on? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's a really good thing that I think founders early stage founders, especially if you're like about to start your company or you're like thinking about putting together a team, it's really something to, to understand. Um, and hopefully, you know, founders can learn from my massive mistakes in this area. So, you know, the, I think the first idea you have as a founder, once you get a little bit of funding or, you kind of get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm going to go build this product now is you think, okay, I have to go out and I have to hire a software engineer. I have to find a developer, right? And then I'm going to get that developer. Maybe I'll get a few developers and we'll start building out the platform because that makes sense, right? Developers code and I need coders and, you know, we'll build out the platform. But running a software team is a very, like running a software team well is a very organized, uh, meticulous process that has to be done really well by people that are experts in the field. Um, and so that's one element of it. And then the second element of it is if you hire somebody that's used to working for Chase Bank, right? Or uh, Bank of America, right? And that that's the kind of projects they're working with. And then they come and they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to focus on your startup, <laughs> right? That they have no understanding of how a startup functions, how the release cycles need to happen, the urgency that's always on a founder to be able to perform and like get the next release out. Like they just don't have any clue. So like my advice to founders would be, um, if, if, you know, before they go out and hire a bunch of developers is you need to find a team like Parallax that understands startups. Like that's what Parallax is so different with that, you know, that was different than any other team I've worked with. I've probably worked with about 15 different, um, development companies over the years, um, including running my own at one point. And so... So what Parallax does infinitely better than I did and any one of those companies done is they understand the DNA of startups and how startups function. And then they build really meticulous, really well thought out software around that kind of thinking and methodology. And that is very, very unique. And we'll, we'll say you as a founder so much time, so much energy. Because it, it really, you know, as a founder, you need to be spending the most of your time like getting your customers, like figuring out 
you know, where you're going to get funding from. Because you've learned from me that I'm 175 meetings deep, right? And that's where I've gotten funding from. So it takes a long time to get 175 meetings. Um, so um, that's where you need to spend your energy. And it's a huge energy suck when um, you have software consuming all of that. All right. Uh, maybe it would be useful here to, to give a little bit of a timeline. So, uh, how long had you been trying to develop various skills outside of Parallel before you found us? And then, uh, what, what did that change time frame look like? Yeah. So March of 2021 was when we started developing, um, the platform and I I believe uh, um, we've been working with Parallax since December or November, maybe November of last year, something like that. But That's I think, right. I think, yeah, sounds about right. And we had been in kind of loose conversation before that. Um, but by the time we actually got everything together and started working, it was about, I think, November last year. So, that entire time, which is a lot longer that we spent beforehand doing the code on our own, um, you know, we we had two engineers that we were that were working for us that, you know, were also working multiple other jobs at the same time, and so we realized after a few months our output was so low we weren't getting anything done, um, and. And then, you know, we would ship software out and it would have, you know, a hundred bugs and there was no clear way of how to like get ahead of that. Um, and so, you know, we, we were able to get software, but the shot, the software that we were shipping wasn't very usable <laughs> and it wasn't very, um, well land from a release standpoint like when it was being released and how it was being released was just very poorly done and so it was like in in the last you know few months before even working with Parallax we had like gotten to where we were at least not like completely like completely grounding and you know not able to to stay afloat but we're still just not doing it the way it needed to be done in any capacity. And so when the Parallax team came on board, which um, which is really, this is exactly how it happened. When the Parallax team came on board, it was literally in about a three-week time they were like, oh my goodness, like everything is just working. Like things are just going better. Like, like it's just like, this is how, like this is a feeling of like how it should feel. <laughs> like, you know, the software is working, like things are being shipped. Like if we say, Hey, we're going to over the next month, we're going to try to knock out 16 features. We actually do that. We actually ship 16 features. And it, it that I think was, um, was just where it really changed for us. And, and, you know, to tell you anything since December, of last year, you know, we've gone from zero dollars 
in revenue. In December, we got our first 15,000 in revenue as a company to now we're over a million dollar annual reoccurring revenue yearly. So that's how important it is to have a good partner. Like that's the difference because I know for a fact if we were back there with our old team of like a couple of in-house engineers that were just like flinging code, right? We would not be where we are today. We'd probably not be in business, quite frankly, because <laughs> um, we had to start relying on sales to, to survive. So, um, so yeah. All right, that's great to hear. I want to dig into that to the early days of that partnership, though, just a little bit more. Just so yeah. If there are any other founders in a similar situation, they might know what to expect when they kick things off with Parallax. So uh, what were some of the decisions that were made very early on when you started working with the Parallax team? Was it like, we need to throw out huge chunks of the product and build from scratch? Was it, we need to tackle bugs first? Was it, what did that look like? Cause I haven't been privy to this process. But- yeah. Yeah, so there was a lot of just like cleaning up the house that needed to be done, you know. So there was one, there was no real or clear organization to how we were releasing. So we were essentially just, you know, we would finish a feature and ship it. And it was supposed to be QA'd by the engineer that was building it. I don't know if you've ever worked with engineers. You obviously have, <laughs> you know, engineers QA in their own work. Sometimes just, it just doesn't really happen. It's like a nice idea. Um, but uh, so there was like that kind of thing. There wasn't any order going on to how stuff was being shipped. And so I think the biggest thing was when we started with Parallax is we, we essentially just like, really studied what was going on for about a few days a week we were, tried to fit, get a healthy understanding of okay this is how things are being released this is where the platform stands these are the issues that need to be tackled um and then was really figuring out a good plan that we wanted to go after and um uh, take care of um or go after and and follow Um, and you know, that, that was really the big thing that we initially did. And, um, and I think the thing, you know, this working with other software teams before, um, other software companies before the, the thing that I noticed immediately, uh, with the folks at at Parallax was, and our team was, they would actually think about improvements before I did oftentimes. So I've never experienced that with any other team I've worked with. So th- like they would catch like, oh, a user is noticing this problem. We, we, we saw that a user was having this trouble with a problem and we went ahead and implemented a fix already. Like we've added a solution in place. And usually how you're engaging with a with a software team is you have to tell them every single thing they're going to do and work on and they just ship it and they're not thinking through your company they're not thinking through how are your users interacting how what is best for the platform that's really going to help you have to be that person as 
you know, oftentimes as the founder, like, and um, Parallax is like, they're like, they are your team in the company. They're like, they feel like they're co-founders with, like, that's how it feels. Like you, we're co-founders with Parallax in this. That's how it feels. And like, they're thinking through ideas oftentimes before I'm thinking through the improvements that need to happen and they're going and implementing them. And so that was initially something that just like totally surprised me that I wasn't even expecting. Cause I was expecting a good team, you know, Shagan's recommendation is gold, right? So I was expecting a really good team, but the way that, um, you know, the team thought, and the way that it felt like, oh my goodness, they care just as much about the products as I do. They're thinking through the problems and the solutions. That was huge. And it just saves you as a founder, it saves you so much mental energy to have that. Because if you're constantly consumed, like you're living in this world of anxiety of like, oh, I have to remember the hundred problems that are going on wrong with the platform because nobody else cares, you know, that's a horrible place to operate for us as a founder. Um, and that's something that's different with Parallax. Amazing to hear that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure Alexander and the whole team will be happy to hear that as well. Uh, yeah. We're going to put together part of this interview will be put together into a case study of, of what the partnership has looked like and what we've built together. So I'm excited to see that from your perspective and from theirs as well. So I guess besides um, the, the revenue coming in, were there any other key results uh, of the partnership to date? Yeah, well, <laughs> one, we have a working platform. It's up right off the bat. The platform's working. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, we have a real product. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it's a cool thing. We, like... I wake up every single morning at 5 a.m. And usually one of the very first things I do is I'll go through the the calls that are happening between students and tutors every day just to kind of stay very close to the product. And we're now having hundreds of calls happening where tutors are helping students solve these problems and where, um, you know, uh, tutors are actually helping students network. They're telling them like, Hey, I'll help you find a job when this is all done. And we've created this really cool thing and being able to see that live and working as it was imagined, I could have never done without parallax. So that, that milestone one, we have this amazing product that's working, um, that for a second, I didn't know would ever get off the ground. Um, just due to all the obstacles and challenges we face. Um, but then I would say the the thing that Parallax does so incredibly well is they understand you're a startup and you're having to you're having to hit certain milestones to do things, right? So you're having to hit certain milestones to bring on customers. You're having to hit certain milestones to bring on students. You're having to hit certain milestones to bring on investors. So the, the way that Parallax has partnered with me to think about the product has been from that viewpoint, not just like, hey, Daniel, what's a really cool product you want to build? And, you know, we'll we'll do it as long as you have money. It's, 
It's like, hey, what is the metric that's going to make you successful? Like, how do we need to build this to have the kind of reporting, the kind of KPIs um, behind students and tutors um, that that customers and investors will want to have before they will write you a really big check? Um, and that, like, that's literally a conversation I have daily with, um, you know, Alexandra and everybody on the Parallax team is like, okay, hey, you know, what are we doing to kind of hit these uh, milestones you have in, inside the platform um, that are focused on? Uh, things like, you know, reporting statistics that we've built in, like really detailed reporting on how are the students engaging with the tutors? How are the tutors, um, how active are the tutors being on the platform? Um, how, how many, you know, uh, admins from the nonprofit log on and engage with their cohort. Just simple things like that, like that are um, really important from the investment side to be able to secure more capital. And that's a game changer right now because, like, I think it's something like 97% of all venture capital. I could be wrong on this statistic, but it's a huge number has like dried up. Like, it's. It's a crazy time to raise capital. Now, there's a ton of dry powder. There's literally billions of dollars of venture capital sitting on the sidelines. But what does that tell you? Investors are super scared right now. And they're not wanting to easily depart from their cash. So what do you have to do? You have to take away all their possible objections. You have to show them the data. You have to show them the traction. And if you don't have a team like Parallax, you're probably screwed. Truth be told, and I'm not paid to say this. I, I'm really just, you know, really just passionate about this. Yeah, um, it's critical. Yeah, I guess the other option is just to to change your donate domain name to dot AI, and and then you get yeah to dot AI, you get the money you <laughs> need. You've described a lot of amazing things about the partnership between Veriskills and Parallax so far. But my last question in regards to our team here is. Uh, what is one thing you would tell a founder about Parallax that they might not find on our website or now on Eager's Twitter feed? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Which is the like a 24-7 a day feed uh, that he's always engaged with, which is amazing. Um, mad respect to his, his feed. Um, so uh, I would say... You know, oftentimes, like every company says, you know, every company that like brands themselves well, and I think Parallax brands themselves in a really unique way to like, you know, get the attention of founders in a, in, from their perspectives. But um, every company says, we're great, hire us. You know, we're, we're doing, you know, we'll do a great job for you. We'll, we, we get you, right? And... Um, in my experience with working with about 15 different groups over the course of my career with tons of different applications is that there is a real difference between, you know, a team like Parallax that says, we understand that for you to be successful, like our success is tied to your success. So we are going to operate from an entrepreneurial perspective, everybody on the team, this is something you want to find on the website. Everybody on the Parallax team 
is like an entrepreneur. Everybody feels like an entrepreneur on the Paralike team, which is a very different understanding and perspective than most anybody you're going to engage with. Because if you're going to help founders, right, achieve this like monumental massive challenge of like pulling this company out of thin air, out of the earth, right, and and making it be something that not only people pay for, but is worth millions, tens of millions of dollars. If you're going to do that. You have to have people that get you and understand you to help you do that and help you achieve that. And um, I think that's the game changer with Paralyte. They operate so entrepreneurial um, and they the, the team and everybody on the team is wired like a startup founder. Um, and I think, you know, if I was a startup founder, you know, and I was choosing between two companies that did the same thing, but one was full of 10 entrepreneurs who built products like yours every single day and worked with founders and they're all entrepreneurs themselves, you know, with that kind of mindset and the way that they operate, I would 1 billion per percent go with that team. So I think that's probably, there's a, there's a long list of other phenomenal things, but that probably is the biggest thing that like you, you wouldn't find on the website is this is a team of crazy entrepreneurs that build incredible software in a meticulous way that are now joining your team. Then what does that mean for you? It's just going to supercharge your team. Very cool. We're trying to, to, to share that story as best we can in, in an appealing way. So, um, yeah, yeah, we're taking steps towards that for sure. Um, let's see, let's stick with Twitter for a minute. Uh, because it told me that you have had a profile there since 2009, but you don't seem to tweet very often. Uh, to, yes. what do you think about this whole build in public movement there? Do you think it's important for founders to have a presence? there or on some other act it could be linkedin it could be somewhere else um and maybe follow up to that would be how has your use of it changed over time yeah great question so yeah i've been a long time twitter user um i can't remember when twitter first came out was it 2008 do you know do you remember I don't it was a long time ago, but yeah. So I, I've been on it for a long time, but so I, my, I have two thoughts on it. The build in public thing is phenomenal. That's that's a really great thing. So, um, like, and it's something I really need to do better at is like posting more often, just like not overthinking it. But there's another thought behind it, which the second thought is. Founders get stuck in this idea that, oh, okay, I, let's say I'm building a fintech company, right? And I should be posting more often and I'm telling my story, right? They start like posting out blog articles about fintech or, hey, we wrote a blog article challenging, you know, crypto 1.1's merge with, yet nobody cares, right? It's horrible content. So if you have, if if you are going to commit to it and do it, and I think there's a, there has to be a buffer of like, like founders have to understand that like, 
they have to do that on top of everything else they're doing. And sometimes, you know, that like if you can't manage doing that on top of everything else well, then maybe just focus on doing the things that matter really well. But um, but I think you should rise to the occasion. Like, and I'm telling myself this, right? So this is a current lesson for Daniel. Rise to the occasion, you know, post more, tell your story, tell your daily interactions that's happening with customers, students, me and you, we just had this podcast, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what, you know, that's what I should do. But tell the story, don't, don't throw out content because you think like, oh, our corporate strategy is we're going to just tell people, you know, what's happening in the industry or we're going to post about some boring article. People care about people's stories and, and content that's interesting is is engaging content. And we live in a world where, you know, you got a three-second attention span. So, so um, it's probably less than that. If I'm going to read a tweet, it's got to get me in like a nanosecond, right? And so, um, like, build in public, but do it well um, and and. Don't take this approach of, okay, now I'm going to find every boring blog or, or I'm going to write uh, an article on my defense of the latest technology or something, you know, like create interesting content that's digestible and tell your story. Just, you know, be a citizen journalist for yourself. Um, you know, what's happening, what's interesting about that. Uh, that would be my lesson and, you know, then my lesson that I need to follow better. So I, I engage, like I use Twitter probably the most these days for finding venture capitalists to, um, engage with. And Twitter is the best platform in the world for finding venture capitalists because you can literally find a venture capitalist. And start a direct conversation back and forth with a venture. Like, there's no other platform in the world where you can really have that level of interaction. Um, and you can also find out, okay, is this somebody that's like, do they have a fund that's liquid right now? Or are they going to spend an hour of your time just so they can boost up their ego? And then just say, oh, sorry, we're going to pass because, you know, this doesn't fit our thesis. When really, they just don't have cap. Um, so, right. oh yeah, longer answer than you wanted, but <laughs> that's a great perspective. Uh, let's see. I wanted to dig in a little bit to things that you've learned along your journey, because we, we have attracted a lot of early stage founders into the nano community. And, and that's why you has been working a lot with the rest of the team here. So I, I wonder if you could share some of your, your wisdom and insights with them around three areas when it comes to building startups. Uh, first it is pre-product, uh, the problem and idea validation stage. Uh, do you have any golden nuggets for them at that point? Yeah, I said, I really, really great question. So, um, and I always try to take this question from like how I learned this because my personality is I learn things the absolute hardest way by like going through the brick wall multiple times and then realizing like maybe go through a door, not a brick wall. Right. So, um, so it, it, for me, um, you know, 
when you're in the pre-revenue, pre-product kind of stage, um, you, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to determine a few things. So you, one, you ha you have a feeling you like, do you have a like gut feeling that something is really missing that you need to build, right? Like I, I have a feeling. And then what validates that feeling for you? Is it just a feeling, right? Like, did I just have this really great feeling that, oh, I, I feel like this would work? Or do you have some kind of unique perspective, some kind of unique experience that validates that feeling? Like, I'm, you know, uh, I'm going to build an app to help students, you know, study better. And over the last four years of studying in study groups with, you know, 200 different students, I've always noticed the same thing. That's a really validated feeling. Um, but if you just have this idea from the standpoint of like, oh, I feel like this is missing. I feel like this would be incredible. I feel like it would be the next Facebook, you know. There's no validation. There's nothing that tells you that's true besides a really strong feeling. And as an entrepreneur, you can get those kind of ideas and feelings all the time. Right. Um, so what validates it? What validates it to be true? And then focus more on the business before you start focusing on the tech, right? Because one thing um, you can spend so much time on is imagining the products that will come right like building let's build out this really cool technology let, that can do all these things and oh wouldn't it be cool if ai was doing this on the platform or wouldn't it be and you can do all that before even ever talking to a customer and then you start talking to customers and the customer will, will be like well, that's cool, but we never use it because we have these three other things that do all of that already. And so, you, and you're a startup, so why would you, we use you over Microsoft? Um, so, uh, like, like try to you know because you can spend a long time building product that nobody uses and building technology that nobody uses. So, like, focus, you know, validate your gut feelings, your assumptions, validate those ideas that you feel really strongly about. And then spend time on what is the business before you spend too much time on what is the tech here? What, what happens on the technology side that, you know, is going to be so cool because the technology side has to be done right. But, at the end of the day, like I, I made this mistake before I would like build an app, put it out on the app store and think like, oh, this is going to get a million downloads and then it get no downloads. And I'd be like, why is this? Why didn't nobody download my app? I'm really insulted. Right. Did I not do a marketing right? Or, and nobody wanted that kind of a, an app, you know, and you know, it just wasn't something that was needed or wanted. And I spent time in my head thinking like, this is something really great and wonderful, but I didn't validate it with anybody else. So, um, like spending time, getting closest to the pain, right? 
So if you're building an app for students and study groups, spend, you know, a long time talking to students, you know, and interviewing them before you start building. And then think about what is that business? Don't like have this idea of like, okay, we're going to figure out the business model later. Like, you know, we'll start free and then eventually it will just be a, a billion downloads and we'll sell advertising somehow or something. Uh, like, what is the business? How, how does that make money? Like, because if the economics are sound, that's the thing that's going to make you win in today's day and age, especially with venture capital being so hard to get. Like, if you have a business that's generating cash and if people are actually paying you for it because there's a real, like, there's a real business model that makes sense, then you're going to attract investors that want to invest in you. But if you just have this, like, this tech that you think is cool, it's not validated, nobody cares. All right. I just want to put a pin in that generate revenue versus attract investors thing and come back to it a little bit later. Yeah. Made me think of another question, but, uh, okay. So you, you described a lot there, but let's move on to, um, MVP development and, and go to market. So what are some thoughts there? Yeah. So, you know, MVP and go to market. So, you know, in my mind, you know, you, you need enough capital. So a few thoughts. One, if you're somebody that can build your own MVP or like put together an MVP in Figma and get it working, you know, that way, and you're able to raise enough venture capital to like then build out that MVP into like a fully functioning MVP, um, like, you know, that's really great. Um, but the, like the MVP, you want to try and get to an MVP as quickly as you can. So you can get it out there and start like seeing how it works and functions. So this is why choosing your, like your strategy for who is building your MVP or how is it being built, um, is so critical because if you think like, if you, if you spend a year building out an MVP or, you know, six months even building out an MVP and, and then you finally get it out there and you, you're going to learn so much when you get it out into the market and into the world that that's the true testing ground. So, um, you know, I would say like your goal is to like do it in the highest quality in the fastest amount of time with the smallest budget, <laughs> which are three very hard things to do. Um, but, uh, you know, there's so much technology now that can help us to create an MVP quickly. It don't, don't add in every dream feature you want to have in your MVP. Like, it, like if you have a product roadmap, that's huge, like focus on two to three things, right. Or maybe even one thing that you want to do really well in the MVP that shows the, the fundamentals of how this works and you can start getting users and people testing it out. Um, and it does maybe that one thing really well. Focus on that, get it out the door because once you start getting traction and you maybe you raised some seed capital um, to really start pursuing that, 
then um, then you can start adding in those other features and, and doing those things. But you will never get off the ground if your MVP is this thing that has 50 features and have to do all these really neat, cool, technical things. So, um, and go-to-market strategy, um, this, this is a huge thing for founders to keep in mind. Do not go and say, okay, I'm going to go and do this marketing campaign that I'm not sure if it will work or not, right? Like I'm going to go do Google AdWords, right? And I'm going to spend $5,000 on Google AdWords to get downloads for my uh, app. And you've never, like, are you, my first question would be, are you a Google AdWords expert? Um, have you done, like, have you done 10 years of Google AdWords campaigns? And so you know that if you spend 5,000, you're going to like really confidently get a ton of downloads, or is it just a test? Because that's a really, you know, unwise way to test out, you know, getting users. What I would do, you know, is go around physically <laughs> to a hundred different locations with an iPad or your phone and sign up users. Say, hey, look, check out this app. You know, set up a booth. You have to be really, if you want to make it, you got to be really crazy to make it as an entrepreneur. And if you think, oh, I'm going to do the safe way. I'm going to create this little Facebook marketing campaign. I'm going to, you're going to be out of money and you're not going to have any traction and investors won't want to do anything with you. So what you need to do is you got to, hustle and you got to out hustle everybody else and you got to go out there into the market and you got to say okay where are the physical places where i'm going to sign up 100 users where you know who are my friends that can get me close to these users so like for instance i've spent zero dollars on marketing to get to a million dollars in annual reoccurring revenue um in seven months and um and the reason I did that is I literally went through every single connection I had on LinkedIn, every single contact in my phone. And I said, okay, here's 25 people that, or we made a list, I think of 50 or so people, 50 or so people that can connect me to nonprofits that, that they might sit on the board of, or they might have given to, or they might be friends with, they might work at. They're going to connect me to a nonprofit that I can set up a meeting with and sell. That was our marketing campaign. And people think about marketing in this standpoint. Okay, I got to do ads now, or I got to, you know, I have to create um, this elaborate, you know, marketing plan. I got to spend $10,000 to do it. Um, you don't know anything yet, you know, as a founder with with what is going to work with your product. And so if you don't know what is going to work, how can you market for that? Like, like if you're like, okay, I'm going to market a product that I don't know how users are going to react to. And I'm going to say, that's my shot for being successful, but that's going to get me the traction I need. That's like, that's like, I mean, you have worse odds with that than gambling and you know, you're a bad gambler. Uh, so, um, you know, like create the attraction yourself, like 
go out there and hustle because that's what you can control. You can control going to a hundred different locations and signing up users, annoying the hell out of your friends by texting and calling them, emailing them to get them to make introductions to nonprofits. You can control that. What you can't control is I'm going to spend $5,000 on Google AdWords. I users may or may not sign up for a call and you know, I just don't know what will happen. That's what you can't control. So that would be my advice with go to marketing. It's a critical stage. Um, kind of surviving quite honestly. Yeah. Good insights. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, you've got the product out there. It's launched. Uh, what do you do next? Yeah. So we're, you know, our planning is to scale what we're doing. We want this to be, you know, are, are, are you saying it's for founders? Uh, either, either direction you want to either take. Either or. Okay. I'll answer. I'll try to answer both quickly. So, you know, our goal is we want to scale this now. It's working. People are, are enjoying it. And like, I would say for founders, like your goal is to get to the point where like users are using the platform, things are stable and like people are paying you, right? They're, and it's working. It's working as intended. Like people are paying you. They enjoy the experience. There, there's always, you're going to improve a hundred things along the journey every year. But it's to a point of stability where it's like, okay, now if I, you know, load up the vending machine, you know, and I put a dollar in, it's gonna, you know, give me a, a, a piece of candy, right? <laughs> you know, so like, that's the point you want the company to be at. Um, you don't want it to be, you know, spitting out, you know, um, your money every time or something like that, you know, horrible analogy. But, uh, you know, you want to focus on getting it to that point and then being able to scale it. Um, and so that's usually the time where investors will engage the most with you because your traction, you have the traction, everything's working and, um, and it's, you know, it's at a very investable stage. The vending machine is working. So now if I'm an investor, I'm like, if I give you $50 and you load up the vending machine with candy, I know that I'm going to be able to make those sales. Right, I know that I'm going to have the return from the candy sold in the vending machine. Um, so, like, that's um, that's kind of where we're at right now as a company. Um, and it's it, you know it's taken two and a half years for us to get here. So it's been like I don't want anybody to think like, oh, this was an amazing like pain-free journey of us getting to this point overnight success. As, yeah, yeah, overnight success. Of getting to this point, it was like, uh, you know, Elon Musk had a quote of like, uh, starting a company is like eating glass and staring into the abyss, um, and <laughs> simultaneously. And, uh, that there's that is probably the most true quote I've ever heard, and it's going to be that for everybody. But if you if you can get there, um, then that's where investors will engage with you. And that's why we have, like, right now, I've done 175 pitches roundabout over the last two and a half years just for this company. And in the early days, it was like every investor I engaged with, they were telling me, 
you know, if I got the call at all, they would be telling me how I need to do the business completely differently and how it was a horrible idea and like everything under the sun. Um, now when I'm engaging with investors, it's like they're excited too. You know, I'm not having to try and get them excited, right? You know, like they're excited to be on the call. And that's a very different place. It's a like it's a real place you can get to as a founder. Um, so um you just have to be, you know, willing to get there and have the grit, because it's gonna take a lot of grit to get there. Right on. Let's stick with the investment topics just for a second longer, and then we'll start to wrap up. Um, you mentioned several times how hard it is to raise funds now, but now that you sort of passed that threshold, investors are excited about it. Um, I'm curious on your philosophy here, philosophy here, because you know, bootstrapping is becoming seems like it's becoming more popular. Founders are talking about you know making calm companies that aren't like venture scale growth, so that they can retain more equity and just have more control over what the company does. Uh, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on this and what advice you would give to other founders. Um, focus on raising no matter how hard it seems. Focus on accelerators early to sort of gain some traction. Where do you sit with this? Yeah, so like I think one, in a sense you have to like boot draft or or raise like friends and family money to to do what you need to do um to to be able to get to the point where you're interesting even to accelerators accelerators are an awesome avenue um because it, the thing about what accelerators are so cool is you automatically have a community of people that know uh, investors that know all the obstacles and challenges, like they're usually pretty knowledgeable people who can guide you. And so you're like, you know, you're going through this intensive process. So I think accelerators are phenomenal because it's essentially connecting you to a, a network greater than you have that you can, that is also interested in doing the things you're wanting to do. So that's going to, help you raise capital. It's going to help you, um, do a lot. Um, but so accelerators are really good. Um, but you're probably not going to get much traction if you just have an idea and you're going, I mean, there's some accelerators probably that are, would take you, but like, I think you should really focus on like getting that MVP, getting that thing built first. That is cool. And having so something unique about it you know that um you know like um you know founder university with uh jason uh calicanis um he he does this thing called founder university where he has tons of you know entrepreneurs come through and they kind of build something and their whole goal is to like get one customer or get two customers using it and paying anything like could be 25 cents but they're just they're in there and they're testing it out and that says something that's a signal so um like having anything like that at all that you can get into an accelerator um with um is great um to answer your question more squarely um i would say 
Um, you know, bootstrapping is is one way of doing it, and, and venture is another way of doing it. Um, you know, the the cool thing about venture capital, if you can get it, it's become incredibly hard to get. Uh, now, so you, you, in a sense, you have to like, take the, you have to take the mentality of that. I'm going to build this company. Like I'm bootstrapping it in order to attract venture capital, because if you have this mentality that, okay, I just need 250 grand and I'm going to be able to get to customers, right? If you have that mentality now, it just won't work like or like if I have 250 grand, I can go out and build an MVP, I'll hire two salespeople and we'll, we'll go that route. That's just not going to work. So you have to, in a sense, like bootstrap, raise a little money from your friends and family, whatever you need to do to get some metric of traction before you can even get to venture capital. So you have to have the mentality of a bootstrapped founder when you're going out and pursuing that direction. Um, in order to kind of get the success you're after, in my opinion. Um, and then I think, you know, it, staying bootstrapped versus not like I, my whole goal is with what I'm doing is that I am building something that, you know, ha can affect the world in a positive way, in a big way, right? And I'm not doing it to, you know, I don't want to build Vero skills to um, help, you know, a hundred people get into their next best opportunity. I want to build Vero skills to help a billion people get into their next opportunity. Um, so it, it's just, it's really, what do you want as a founder? I would say that is like, maybe answer that question for yourself. Are you wanting to do something that affects the world in a big way, or are you wanting to do something that it, it maybe you'll get there eventually where it will be affecting the world in a big way, but it, it's going to be, a, a, you know, a slow, very, very slow journey. And there's some founders that are like really, you know, content in being like a solo panure, you know, and like doing it, you know, one person company. There's a lot of stuff out there now about companies founders wanting to run a one-person company so there's there's people that want that but for me personally i i want to build something that i'm excited about that changes the world in a big way and uh venture capital for me is a way for me to be able to do that see that vision happen um but but my warning with that is you have to think and act like a bootstrapped founder for a while in order to get the interest of venture capital. So that, that would be my thoughts on it. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And I guess let's talk a, a little bit about that billion people then. Uh, who should be checking out various skills right now and signing up either as a mentor or a learner? Yeah. So anybody that is interested in you know, if you're a student or like if you're you're somebody that wants to get into the field and you are in a uh, an area that is economically, you know, 
hit, right? It's a harder hit economic area or maybe a community or maybe uh, just a geographic location. It's hard for people to break into tech in that area. Um, Go to the barrowskills.com forward slash apply and apply to come through as a student. And then if you're a good fit, we can pair you with a nonprofit um, that would would sponsor you to come through and train. Um, and then obviously, if you're a nonprofit that serves a community of individuals that can benefit from this economic opportunity that technology jobs um, offer, which can be, you know, starting salary to 60 all the way up to 100,000 a year um, at the end of our trading, um, and that could benefit your community, then we, you know, then reach out to us through our website and, um, and we want to talk to you about what is building a cohort for your community to look like and can it help. Um, and then as a tutor, if you're a skilled software engineer, you're somebody that's skilled in AI, um, and you, you're somebody that wants to give back and you want to impact, um, the next generation of software engineers and technically minded folks, this is a great way to do that and to make, um, some side hustle money at the same time. Um, so, so yeah. Very cool. Well, I hope, uh, you start reaching those communities that you're looking for and continue to, I guess, uh, reach those communities as you grow and scale up their skills. So, are there any new features or anything really cool that you'd like to tell people about that's coming out soon? Yeah. So I think the things I'm most excited about is all of the, um, the features that we're working on, on the AI side of the platform. So we've actually, we've built it into the platform, um, different AI technologies already that measure students skills through like github and um kind of measure where they are at skill wise but we have some really cool features that are going to help students learn and students uh, um, get hired better and um and then help the students learn so one of the things that um on the ai side that we're coming out with is you know sometimes tutors or sometimes students forget that the fastest and best way for them to learn is to take advantage of the tutoring calls as much as possible. So we're building in an AI, you know, uh, tutor buddy, right? Type equivalent where it's not actually uh, doing the tutoring, but it's pointing them towards, it's kind of like their mentor, AI mentor, I guess is the best word to be there to say when they're coding, hey, I noticed you've been struggling with this code for a while. Go ahead and book that tutoring call because you're going to be able to get that question solved. And, you know, hey, I noticed that this line of HTML, you know, you've done it wrong three times. Go ahead and schedule that tutoring call so you can learn and and get this problem solved. there's also a lot of unique aspects because we have hundreds of hours of tutoring and student calls that happen on the platform. We're able to measure things that are very unique and different 
using AI that no other platform can really um, offer on on the recruitment side. So like communication skills, you know, strengths and weaknesses, things like that, that like you couldn't ever have those insights unless you did four or five interviews with a potential candidate. Like because we're doing hundreds of hours of tutoring calls and we have AI measuring certain things on those calls, that is something that is going to help um, our students and, and uh, tutors um, train better and get hired better. Um, so those are some of the things I'm most excited about is we have about four or five pretty big features on the AI side that are working with some of the AI we all already built into the platform, but are kind of going to be like a game changer, I feel like. So that's what I'm excited about. Very cool. All right, let's stick with AI for a hot second, and, and I'll give my devil's advocate view. If if I was in the life of a student, uh, let's say in my, my former life, I was working at a restaurant as a cook, it didn't pay very well. I look around and I say, look, I need to learn how to code. I'll get a better job. I'll have a better life, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, I, but I look around now and I say, look, AI is going to be doing all this low-level coding in the next couple of years. It's going to take me 6, 10, 12 months to learn enough. And by then, those jobs that are paying well now might be gone. And AI is doing yep. What's your take on that situation? Why should I still sign up uh, and not stick to cooking? Yeah, <laughs> great. I saw that on your LinkedIn profile. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Chefs are some of the most interesting people. Um, so, uh, you know, I love the question. It's the question everybody is asking right now. It's like, hey, listen, Cat GPT 4. I mean, is spitting out better code than I'm never going to learn in 12 months. Why am I going to get into this if it's going to be replaced, right? So it's, you know, it's the it's the kind of classic thing that happens with, um, with great technologies that come out, right, and, and kind of change the game. Um, you know, one of the great examples... Um, in recent history was software engineers, um, you know, 2010, maybe a little earlier, we're starting to really use source control, things like GitHub, GitLab, and um, starting to use that to store their code online to, you know, to to push commits and, and to be able to collaborate with team members on the code that they were working on. Well, within a very short amount of time, every company said, hey, the only kind of engineers we're going to hire are engineers that know how to use source control really well. And there was all of these software engineers um, that were these old school, you know, Lone Ranger type software engineers that um, said, no, I'm going to I'm going to do things the way I've always done them. I'm going to write code, you know, in an isolated vacuum and. That's just what's going to happen, and I'm not going to learn how to uh, do this. And they didn't find jobs. They were the ones that were not able to get hired after you know their current job, you know, w was was not a, a thing anymore. So the cool thing about AI is, yes, it is going to eliminate millions of jobs in the tech world. Let's just be honest with that. 
but it's going to cre create so many more jobs that we've not even possibly imagined yet that are going to be needing people that understand code and understanding how to work with the technology of AI very well to be able to do the job. And currently there's nobody that does knows that really, right? Because it's such a new technology, right? So who are those people going to be? Like AI trust and safety, right? Like we've already seen so much in the news, like, you know, chat GPT-4, you know, is it biased? Is it, you know, are, a, AGI, is it going to, you know, turn into the Terminator and, and you know, destroy humanity as we know it? That's a huge issue. That thing alone, that one subject, AI trust and safety, is going to create tens of millions of jobs. Just that alone. And then just in AI, there's so much more. And so am I going to hire an AI trust and safety person that doesn't understand coding? Absolutely not. I'm going to under I'm going to hire an AI trust and safety person that not only understands coding but understands how to work with artificial intelligence, understands uh machine learning, understands all of these things. So, you know, how it's changed with how we train software engineers is it's not anymore okay to train a software engineer like they were even trained in 2020, right? Where you can learn JavaScript, HTML, CSS, you know, whatever the the languages are to build websites, and then you're good. You need to know how to use ChatGPT4. You have to understand how language models work. You have to understand how to be, uh, you know, a cyborg software engineer that's using, you know, this great power to do things. Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to take advantage of this huge wave. I think it was um, Goldman Sachs um, or one of those major kind of investment firms predicted that AI is going to create upwards of 90 million jobs in the next few years, um, uh, next decade, if it could have been. But guess what? Those 90 million jobs are not going to be made up of people that don't understand coding. And are not going to be made up of people that don't understand software. Um, so that's the, it, where it, it will replace your front-end engineer that's just like creating websites and, and writing JavaScript. So that will be replaced in a large extent. Um, but what's changing is the job itself due to the technology. And so now you have to be a master of this technology. And if you know the technology, you are the most in demand in skill set out there, period. Because the whole world is trying to figure out how to use AI to their advantage. Every company in the world has 50 AI initiatives and, you know, we're going to use AI, all those companies, and they don't understand it. So who are they going to hire? And so that's that's my thinking on it. All right. Ever the optimist, it seems, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. I still believe that cooking is fun. Maybe I'll go back to the kitchen someday. Yeah, but, yeah cooking. 
I think it's one of the last places where AI will take the job because it's just kitchens are hell and technology yep. just doesn't survive there. <laughs> right. It, uh, cooking and childcare, I think, are like the two, like, it's going to be very difficult for AI to really take care of kids well. And like, you know, it's just, I know this of having two small children. Uh, so, so Yeah. All right, let's land this plane then. Uh, last question for you. Uh, what does success for you as a Veriskills founder look like? And uh, so what are you working towards? And given the right circumstances, how long do you think it will take to get there? A really good question. I think, um, you know, ultimately, I feel like, you know, for me personally, like success is tied to what this platform can do for people. What like what in, kind of impact can this platform have? And obviously, the bigger the company is, and the more people it's serving, the the most impact it can have. So, you know, my goal would be that you know tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of people a year are using Vero skills to, you know, be lifted out of poverty, put into a really amazing career, upskill, you know, get into the career they've always wanted, be able to rapidly learn and, and get the skills they want in the fast paced moving, you know, society that we live in. So my, like, that would be my idea of success the most is that this is a platform that's affecting change in a large way. Um, and then, you know, as far as the answer of like how long, you know, I think it will take to get me there. Um, the honest answer is I don't know, but, um, you know, I, I obviously, I hope it would be, you know, soon. I, I hope that, you know, if everything worked out well within, you know, a few years, this can really be getting places. I, I know from like a short-term perspective, there's, you know, I would say by the end of the year, you know, we, we, we probably will have like thousands of students on the platform learning. Um, so I think that's cool from like, just seeing like what's right in front of me. Um, but I think it's really good as a founder. Um, cause I've gotten stuck in this loop before of like, oh, everything's going to work out here in two years. I just have to keep grinding. And then you get to two years and you're like, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, six months from now, I'll, I'll, it will be there and it's not. So I think it's, I think it's really important to just like, to be of the mindset that if you consistently keep pushing as hard as you can and keep grinding that you will get there and it might look different when you do, but, um, successes is going to be achieved by those who are most determined. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've known a lot of founders that, you know, they lose so much hope after like their expectation in their head doesn't work out. And so I think that's, it's just so important. It could take me 10 years to, um, you know, achieve any kind of like, uh, 
uh, like any kind of uh, accomplishment of that vision that I have for various skills, it could take me 15 years. Um, and that's the reality. Or it could take me two. So, like, I think if, if you have that mindset, I think you'll get there. And hopefully, hopefully I do, right? Um, but I think my chances are, are much better just if I keep grinding and and going at it. And, you know, hopefully we have another, you know, podcast, you know, update here in a couple of years. And I, I haven't gotten there, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that day. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel, for your time today. It's been an amazing conversation, amazing look into what created and what brought Skills about and what you've built together with the team here at Parallax. So everyone go check out Veriskills.com to learn more about the product and join the platform if it's a fit for you as a learner or a tutor. Daniel, thanks a million, man. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You as well. Take care.